PhD is short for Doctor of Philosophy. This podcast shares tips of real-life doctoral students who will eventually defend a dissertation at the end of their academic journey. In this special edition of PhD Tips, we are joined by a special guest who will share their wisdom and five tips for students looking to successfully complete a PhD. If you have been following the ride, thank you for tuning back in. And if you are new, welcome to PhD Tips. Dr. Andrea Curry is an oncology research manager working in patient reported outcomes research. She is an adjunct faculty at Laterno University and she owns and operates a thriving dissertation editing consultancy. In addition to that, she's an author, motivational speaker, and podcast host. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Curry. We are live on the podcast, and I'm joined by Dr. Andrea Curry, who is here on an, I guess she called it invitation. Um, <laughs> I call it a blessing that anyone would, you know, this was just an idea that I hope people would um, take to, and, you know, we have people here like you here to give their insights. So thank, thank you, you for much. coming. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So, um, so as you know, I think we met in a Facebook group, um, and I posted about this, this podcast is for, I'm hoping this podcast becomes a North star for the culture Mm -hmm. and I don't need to explain what the culture is. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so let's just start by, you know, in the pre-recording, I, I would have already said who you are and where you come from, Mm -hmm. um, but let us know from your voice, you know, who you are, um, if you, well, you're a doctor, so you're not in school anymore, um, but where you work and, you know, how are things going? Okay. So my name is Dr. Andrea Curry, and I bring you guys greetings all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, born and raised, very proud of that. And so nice. I have several roles and people laugh all the time, but my main job, I am an oncology research manager. So I work for the West Cancer Center and Research Institute in Memphis, and we see over 17,000 patients per year that are newly diagnosed and metastatic patients. So I oversee our patient reported outcomes research, which is very exciting. It's something new and fresh, and I love it. In addition to that, I am adjunct faculty for Latorno University in the Department of Healthcare, and I absolutely love the opportunity to instill you know, healthcare principles into the next generation and give them tips and feedbacks on how to actually break into the area of healthcare. And so in addition to that, I'm also a dissertation editor. So I maintain and operate a very busy dissertation editing consultancy. And I've helped students probably all over the United States from universities in Texas to Washington, D.C., all over the place. So I absolutely love being able to give doctoral candidates the tools and tips that they need to successfully defend their proposals and their dissertations to cross the finish line. Dope. That's that's really, um, you're busy. Yes, I'm very busy. <laughs> you're busy. And that healthcare, you know, being the adjunct uh, professor and um, sharing information about how to be a healthcare professional, I bet that is totally in right now. It is, absolutely. 
And I'm very thankful that I had the foresight to pursue the opportunity pre-COVID because now I see it all the time on social media. People are asking, how do I break into that? Because most schools now are virtual. So I'm glad that, you know, I'm not, I don't have to compete because I'm already Mm -hmm. in, but I don't mind sharing tips with individuals who are interested in becoming faculty. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So I think you already through, through that um, first small introduction, cleared up that, um, when you're a, you know, either pursuing your PhD and when you obtain your PhD, that it's not like, it's not that you're a legendary iconic figure. You're a person mm-hmm. um, making things work. And, yes. you know, when I set up this podcast, I thought, whoa, this PhD thing, it's so legendary. It's so far reaching. Mm-hmm. But when I'm, in, I'm now I'm in it, it's like, I'm just a real regular person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> This next question is aimed at trying to uh, share about you mm-hmm. that will basically put the take the stress away from people so, mm-hmm. to realizing that, you know, when you enter this journey, you're just um, a human being and a regular person. So if you can remember, mm-hmm. um, uh, you can go back as far as you wish okay. um, to share your academic journey that led you up to the space you're in right now. Okay, so I will just go back as far as high school. I was a straight-A student, number one in my class, had high aspirations of becoming an optometrist, and I went to Christian Brothers University, which is a Mm -hmm. small college here in Memphis, very difficult, very competitive. Most people that go there want to become an engineer, a doctor of some kind, and so I went ready just to take on CBU and CBU shut me down. So I graduated with a 2.74 and I left my undergraduate journey feeling very defeated, feeling as if I'm not as smart as I thought I was in high school. And what am I going to do now? So seven years passed before I actually pursued getting a master's degree because My goal at that time was I just want a master's degree. I couldn't explain it. It's just something that I wanted to do. And I really Mm -hmm. think it was because I wanted to redeem myself from my lack of success in undergraduate school. So I don't remember reaching out to Walden University, but I got a postcard in the mail. I filled it out and I had a call with an admissions counselor. And she asked me which program that I think I would want to pursue. And so she presented me with public health and then with healthcare administration. So I was like, okay, let's do healthcare administration, but still did not think that I would get in with that kind of GPA. And lo and behold, I got into this, I got admitted to the school, to the program that I chose, Mm -hmm. which was healthcare administration. And they told me you're going to have to maintain a 3.0 or you're going to go into academic probation. And it was really a scary thing, but I'm like, okay, I've got to exercise my faith. I'm always talking about my faith and I'm going to mm-hmm. have to just put it to work. And so I took two classes and in both those courses, I made an A. So I was like, wait a minute, maybe I'm not as dumb as I thought <laughs> that I was in undergrad, which it wasn't that I was dumb. It was just a change of pace because my high school was not very challenging. And then to go from not very challenging to very challenging was culture shock. So anyway, fast forward, I'm almost through with my MHA and my mom, we had a conversation and she was like, you should really consider keep go- to keep going. And I was like, why? 
She's like, you're so close. You should just get a PhD. I'm like, wait a minute. That was never in my plan. I never thought about it because I never heard of it until I got to undergraduate school and all of my professors were Dr. So-and-so. And then mm-hmm. I found out they had PhDs. I'm like, no, they are super smart. I would never be able to do that. She's like, well, just call the school anyway and just find out what will you have to do. So at this point, I had maintained a 4.0 the entire master's degree program and I called the school work 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 work, absolutely and I called the school and I asked them you know what are the next steps and they said well let let me look you up and they looked me up and they were like oh my goodness you have a 4.0 you you don't even have to fill out the official paperwork we can just roll you over (laughs) (laughs) so they said well what we'll do because you got your master's with us in the program that you want to go into we will apply all of your credits from your master's program to your doctoral program. So all you have to do are the 11 courses and then the dissertation. I was like, that's all? Said, okay. So got into the doctoral program. So I had about three months off in between finishing my MAJ and starting my PhD. And it took me three years, eight months in one day to become Dr. Curry. And I had a goal, which was probably unrealistic, but that's my type A personality. I wanted to maintain my 4.0, my entire graduate journey. And I got into advanced quantitative analysis and I made a B. And I cried because I felt like to redeem my past, I had to exceed normal expectations and not just pass but to excel and that is something that I stress Mm -hmm. to my students when they're they're like oh I really want to A in your class and I remind them if you did your best that's all I'll ever ask of you and Mm -hmm. every class you're not going to get an A that that was a teachable moment for me to know hey you know stay humble it's okay you did your best let's keep it moving and so when I share with my parents, oh, I'm so devastated. I really wanted an A. I need to retake the class. And my mom brought it into the right perspective for me. She's like, listen, once you're Dr. Curry, no one is going to care that you have a B. All they're going to care about is your that you have that piece of paper. <laughs> I said, you know what, sister, you are correct. And yeah. I just kept moving. And so here I am today. And my goal along the way is to just to be a light to those coming behind me and to let them know you're still a real person while you're going through your program. Life happens. I lost so many family members. My favorite uncle passed away the first year of my program. And so I promised him while he was in hospice care that I would finish and I would make him proud of me. So when things got hard, I just will remember I told Uncle Gardner that I would finish. I told him that I was going to do this and I'm going to make him proud of me. And Mm -hmm. I I did it. And so now here I am. I don't feel like I've arrived. I just feel like, oh my goodness, I did something that I thought was so hard, which it was challenging, but it has made me into a much more well-rounded individual, I believe, today than when I started. Look at God, like the the phoenix that rose from the ashes. Yes. (laughs) You are here ready to slay (laughs) anything in your way. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Thank you. That really is incredible. Um, so this question, the next question I have uh, for you is a question that 
more and more I'm finding is a dangerous question to ask doctors, mm-hmm. um, especially uh, doctors who complete a dissertation. Mm-hmm. And it's asking them to talk about the dissertation. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, you can either be here all night or, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I'm not going to stop you. Okay. Um, you can speak as long as you want, but if you will, give us your 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 executive summary of uh, what your dissertation was about. Okay. So the title of my dissertation is The Evaluation of the Relationship Between Racial Health Disparities and the Patient-Provider Relationship. So I'll stop right there for those who are not health-focused. A disparity is the difference in access to something. So for my study, I focus on African-American patients because I'm African-American. And I dedicated my research to the loving memory of my uncle who I just talked about because in 2013 he was diagnosed with stage four throat cancer and prior to his diagnosis my family and I noticed that there were some changes going on with him and um, he was not one that would willingly go to the doctor which is a part of our culture it's a part of who we are we don't always trust our physicians or nor do we have a medical team I have one from from the rooter to the two, do I have a doctor? So, um, <laughs> so that that's why I'm so passionate about racial health disparities. So I'll just briefly go through the abstract of my dissertation, make this very quick because I believe in being succinct. So African Americans are adversely affected by health disparities due to the complexities of the patient provider relationship. So I used what's called the behavioral model of health services, which helps you to understand how individuals make healthcare utilization decisions. And the purpose of my research was to evaluate how the patient-provider relationship influences inconsistent doctor visits by African-American patients, despite the prevalence of chronic conditions. So my background, I am a certified pharmacy technician. I don't intend to use it anymore, but I intend to remain certified. And what I saw in the pharmacy sector was that a lot of the patients that would come in had chronic diseases, high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, on down the list. Most of those patients did not go to the doctor like they should, one. Two, they did not know what medicines they were taking and why they were taking those medicines. So even though patients, African-American patients, have chronic conditions, they don't always go to the doctor like they should. Mm-hmm. So my study included 45 African-American patients located within Shelby County, Tennessee. And I um, I don't want to read through all the technical stuff, but I was able to determine that it was statistically significant that the patient provider relationship does have an, an effect on African-American patients' decision to seek health care services and to also be compliant with their medication and follow-up care. So it was my hope that my research would educate patients on the importance of seeking timely medical treatment and going to the doctor as necessary because it's really important. And I've been asked to speak on this. I was on TV last year, which was really funny, but it was a a show here in Memphis and I got to talk about my research. So whenever I can give a little blurb and encourage African-Americans to go to the doctor, and it's not that 
you know, I don't care about other races, but because I'm African-American and this is something that I see in my local area, it's really important to me to educate as many as I can. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, ain't nothing wrong with that. And <laughs> yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I need to go to the doctor soon. I know that. <laughs> You, you know, when you you just talking right now, um, and it was a straight line of straight, pure intellect. Um, Dr. Janet Moses, she was a civil rights um, leader in the 60s. With mm-hmm. State. And um, she also, she well, yeah, she studied medicine. She became a um, doctor. Um, I think she was a pediatrician. And she told me that everything that the Black community needs you know, mm-hmm. to pull itself out of its condition is already in the community. Mm-hmm. And so me listening to you just speak, it's like, bang, there it is. There's <laughs> no, like we have all that we need. Mm-hmm. It's here already. Right. It's literally here. And, you know, that's another piece of this podcast. I hope um, could become a- another North Star is saying we we're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's <laughs> We, we arise to the occasion. So thanks for that. Thanks for that. You're welcome. Um, so, so you're, you, you spoke about your busy day, your mm-hmm. busy week, your mm-hmm. busy life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, and cause you have a, I think you have a unique um, uh, life as a doctor because you're doing some teaching, you're doing some, you know, industry professional, de- I would, I guess I would call it professional development work. Um, but also helping students, you know, be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just give a, 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 a general, give us a general sense on like what a typical week like is for you? So it just depends. Um, in my full-time role, I am a manager and I have a direct report. And so right now I have four projects at work, four different studies. So my day or my week, consists of meetings. I have weekly meetings. I have, um, I'm on the phone with patients for a big majority of my work day, calling them to talk to them about the research studies that I have and to try to get them to agree to participate in those studies. I'm running analysis and I'm looking at responses to questionnaires. So my week at work can vary significantly. Some weeks are busy. Like this week, I've had a lot of meetings and we're talking about studies and getting ready, you know, for publications of different things. So I have that. And then when I come home, usually I'm on the phone or I'm working on a dissertation or proposal for a doctoral candidate, or I'm scheduling conversations with them if they're interested in working with me. And then of course, I'm my own social media manager. So that's another job because I'm constantly Mm -hmm. posting something that I hope is encouraging to doctoral students because I'm a part of some groups on Facebook and Mm -hmm. some groups on LinkedIn. So I share when I feel like I have something that's encouraging to share with with them about maybe my story or I always highlight my clients that have successfully defended because that's encouraging And I didn't join those groups until I was actually finished with my program. So I wasn't able to take on the perspective of people that are currently in their program and to see, you know, people finishing and people being successful and people that look like me. I didn't have that until Mm -hmm. after I was already finished. So I try to make sure that I 
highlight my clients that have used my services and now they're Dr. So-and-so. So that's mm-hmm. pretty much how my week goes. And I don't teach every quarter, so I may not have a class for a few months, which is good because then that allows me to have that free time to devote to my clients. Because when I'm teaching a class, I have to kind of pull back on the editing because I have to grade papers and I'm reading homework and grading mm-hmm. <laughs> exams and then responding to my students. And you know, I'm recording videos because everything I'm completely online, remote faculty. So everything is done through canvas but I love it people are like oh you're so busy but I feel like God gives us so much time and the Mm -hmm. time that I have I want to make sure that I maximize every moment and that whenever it's his will for me to leave this earth like Chadwick Bossman says that I can stand before him and tell him I've used everything that you got that you've given me exactly yep you just keep on giving (laughs) 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 <laughs> I'm curious if, because you're, the focus of your dissertation is so um, important and interesting, mm-hmm. um, and every time I have a person on a podcast that is in, uh, has something to do with healthcare, it's so intriguing. It's like, maybe I want to do that, <laughs> but I think it's bad. <laughs> so I'm wondering how um, closely aligned like where can you use some of your dissertation work in mm-hmm. your day to day? Where does it come up the most for you? Um, it comes up a lot in my full-time job because like I said, I work for a cancer center and a lot of the patients as I'm reading through their charts, because prior to me making contact with any patient, I've got to do some background work to see if they meet the inclusion criteria to participate in the study. And so that requires me to read through their records. And a lot of times, unfortunately, I will read that a patient, you know, they they felt a lump or they had some discomfort and they ignored it. And to the point where now they're coming, they've been referred to us and it could be stage three or stage four. And I always wonder why. Mm -hmm. That's something that I, I would have loved to asked my uncle but I never did because I knew why I knew I knew him and I he was a manly man and most men don't want to admit I'm having some challenges or having I'm having some difficulties Mm -hmm. and so I had to be the one that kept pushing him I was like uncle please let me make you an appointment please let me take you to the doctor and he just got fed up he was like okay fine (laughs) but I wasn't Mm -hmm. willing to give up because I'm like, I know something is not right. I didn't know what it was, but I knew something wasn't right. And so because of the persistence of me and my family, we were able to get him the care he needed. And he lived for about two and a half years after that. And we had good times and have great memories. And Mm -hmm. and I was able to get good pictures of him. Mm -hmm. And um, in his honor, I, spearhead a missions project every year because he went into hospice care and the facility that took him in we didn't have to pay a dime and so every year in honor of him I raise money to donate items for hospice patients that come through their facility and last year I think was the biggest year was able to donate over $700 worth of items and so the coordinator she just hugs me and she tells me every year I really depend on the donations that you're able to bring us. And Mm -hmm. 
healthcare and my research is so is so close to me. And that's yeah. something that I tell students that you want to make sure that your research is something that you're passionate about, that you're interested in, because hopefully this is going to be something that you carry with you throughout the rest of your life. It's not just, oh, I'm just writing a paper because mm-hmm. you're going to be asked to speak about it. You you may want to do a spinoff. So I took my dissertation and I um, took a segment of it and wrote an article for a national magazine that got published last year. Nice. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a big accomplishment too. Well, thank you. But it's yeah. got to be personal to you. And this is personal to me because I had a cancer scare about was less like two and a half years after my uncle passed away. And I went into the emergency department because I was having some abdominal pain and I'm like, maybe I ate something that I shouldn't have, but I really don't feel good. And so I went to the emergency department, my dad went with me. And the doctor came in and he was like, ma'am, you have a mass about the size of a watermelon and mm. we're going to go ahead and admit you right now. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like, and we're doing surgery today. I'm like, what? So I didn't get a chance to go home or anything. Did you say watermelon? Yes. Well, not a watermelon. Let me scratch that. A size of a grapefruit. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not a watermelon, not a watermelon, <laughs> the size of a grapefruit. But grapefruit, he was yeah. very, I could tell that the doctor was very worried because he sat yeah. down and he started rubbing his hands over his face. So I was like, this is not good. Mm. And my dad was like, well, that doesn't sound good. And so they admitted me that day. So I go from going to church on Sunday, going to brunch with a friend of mine. And then Monday morning, I'm having to send to the word to my friends and family. Hey, I've been admitted to the hospital and I'm having surgery, but don't worry. Of course, yeah. everybody's worried. Full blown <laughs> surgery. Yeah, this is a surprise to me too. <laughs> Serious surprise. So I was out of commission for about a month. And it was, it was a long road to recovery. But... That's- I just, you know, the doctor told me, he was like, if you hadn't have come when you did, you would have lost your right kidney. Whoa. Yes. So it I was just, something just, it was like a small, he was like, eh, let me just go get it checked out. Right. Because, I mean, the pain woke me up out of my sleep and I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to the emergency room. It wasn't, <laughs> oh, let me try to get into the doctor. I was like, no, I need a CT scan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need them to check me out, and they can't do it with a flashlight. They don't have to <laughs> scan my body. Yeah, and I guess we could. We're, we're moving through the questions quick, so I want to ask more questions. Then. Okay, I guess if, if you have time, absolutely. Cool. So, and this is about um, you know we're in a global pandemic, mm-hmm. and so the questions about that. So, like I remember at the beginning, um, at the beginning. Around like March or so, there was a black woman. Uh, she was a she was a student of UMass University of Massachusetts at Amherst, mm-hmm. and she she was graduated maybe two years out, and she died um, from uh, coronavirus. And she went in and said, you know, check me out. They said, mm-hmm. no, you don't you you don't you don't you don't have what you think you have. Mm-hmm. She came again. She was like, "This ain't it. You got, you got to check me." And they didn't. And then, you know, soon after she died. And so I'm, and I always hear 
the stories about um, it's exclusively black, not exclusively, but um, predominantly black women. Mm-hmm. When they go into the hospital, they take, they say they are feeling something, something's going on. The doctor is seen. It's always like, whatever you're feeling is not true. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that's like a common phenomenon in the healthcare field where black women um, always getting turned down or turned away when they talk to, when it's about, you know, healthcare and going to your doctor to, get answers i think it 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 goes back to the patient i am not one that i accept no for an answer i don't accept Mm. excuses i only want to hear solutions Mm. so my grandmother and she's passed away she passed away in may but in january she went to the emergency department she called me at about 10 o'clock and she was like hey i don't feel good i'm gonna call 911 so I jumped up, my mom and I raced to the hospital, and she remained in the ED from 11 o'clock on that Wednesday night until it was like 1 p.m. the next day. We were still in the emergency room in the same spot. Mm -hmm. And so I had to not take no for an answer because they kept telling me, they kept giving me excuses on why she hadn't been moved to a room. I knew she needed to be admitted. And I just didn't take no for an answer and I got results. Mm-hmm. And after I left, I, you know, shared my my perspective with the appropriate people at that organization to let them know I don't think that it's right that anyone has to go through this. And then for me, with my health, I had a situation where in 2008, I had a cough that wouldn't go away and the cough led to emesis, which is uh, vomiting. And my doctor would do x-rays and she sent me home and give me another antibiotic. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, no, you need to go back again. So it, it took three times, I think. And I was adamant. I told her I'm not getting better. It's getting worse. I'm losing weight and I can't stop coughing. And so she she finally, she sent me to get a CAT scan and they determined that I had pneumonia. Now, mm-hmm. if I hadn't have been persistent, it could have taken me out of here because I felt terrible. So sometimes we got to push back if we're the patient. Sometimes we have to change medical practices. So if mm-hmm. I ever feel like I'm not getting the care that I am paying you for, yeah, it's up to me to find another doctor. Mm-hmm. So, um I, it, you know, it's multifaceted, but I really think all parties are responsible. But if it's your health, your yeah. health matters more to you than it does to your physician, unless you have a doctor like mine who really cares. But yeah. everyone doesn't have that. And then also it takes building rapport to develop that relationship. Mm-hmm. So you can't expect a brand new doctor to know, th- to ask you the right questions. And then the other side of that, based on my research, as the patient, we have to be willing to disclose what's really going on. Don't go into the doctor's office and you want them to be a psychic to tell you what's going on with you. They have a limited amount of time. You Mm want to go in and tell them exactly, hey, I have a cough. My toe hurts. Um, I've been having headaches. Whatever it is, be straight to the point Mm -hmm. so that when they come into the room, you can give it to them straight and then they can help you to go to gather some solutions in order to make your quality of life better. But yeah. for those women, I've read those stories. I read stories of women dying in childbirth and it's just so heartbreaking. 
Yeah. And so I don't know what else can be done outside of, you know, continue to be diligent if you are the patients and for providers, especially them with African-American patients, a lot of them, based on my research, need to develop some cultural competence. Yeah. Because how you communicate with an African-American woman from the inner city is not how you're going to communicate with someone that maybe has more education that's not as educated or as knowledgeable because speaking for myself, and I can only speak for me, I consider myself to be educated on a vast amount of subjects. So you can't prescribe me medication and I'm not going to ever push back Mm -hmm. because I know because I'm a pharmacy (laughs) technician. (laughs) And then I've worked in a hospital setting now working oncology. So there's just a lot of things that I know that I didn't know, you know, years ago, but that comes with experience. So Mm -hmm. having someone with you helps. Anytime my family is hospitalized, we don't ever leave them alone unless, you know, in these times you have to. But when my grandmother was admitted between my mom and I, we stayed until she got discharged. She was never left alone. Mm -hmm. Whenever they came in to administer medication, I asked the nurse, what is it that you're giving her? And they looked at me, but they answered me because they knew that I wasn't playing around. I want to know what you're giving her. I want to keep a handle on everything that's getting put into her body. Yeah. So it's just, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was watching, a, it was something on Netflix. I think it was, it was the, I don't remember the show, but there was a, she wasn't the main doctor. She was, she was one of the doctors that assist. So she might've been a nurse mm-hmm. and it was, it was critical that she was there because whatever the, the boy was saying that he was feeling, the doc, the main doctor wouldn't understand didn't really you know take it to heart but the doctor who she was black she was the nurse mm-hmm. she made sure he got what what he needed um and it was like <laughs> it was a show but it was like a life and death situation if she wouldn't have intervened mm-hmm. like diversity inside of those rooms is mm-hmm. i think probably important too yep absolutely yeah cool all right so we diverted a little bit that's okay <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so the, the, the main, the main stage and, uh, the, the question that I think all of the people who came here to listen to you, Mm -hmm. um, came for is your PhD tips for either prospective students who are Mm -hmm. looking to become PhD students or, uh, students that are already in their program that, you know, are looking (laughs) to be successful. (laughs) And, you know, you have the floor. You can um, say as many tips as you want. Okay. So I came up with five and I really focused these toward doctoral students. So these are people that are already in a doctoral program. But Mm -hmm. even if you're not just going into a program, these are applicable. So the first tip that I came up with is that you must remain focused. And that is the number one. Um piece of success, at least for me and from my perspective, is to remain focused. So you have to keep in mind that life is going to keep moving forward, even while you're in the midst of your program. There are going to be things going on in your life that are outside of your control. And so you're going to have to try not to get bogged down by what happens around you and just stay focused. The second tip, you want to eliminate distractions. 
So that may mean that you're going to have to limit your social activities, which right now should not be difficult because we should be being mindful of maintaining the guidelines from the CDC by being socially distant as much as possible. So for me, I opted not to join Instagram until I finished my program because I didn't want any additional stimulants. I was already very active on Facebook and I'm like, I can't have too many things pulling my attention away from what's most important that is getting out of school. Bless your heart. (laughs) (laughs) The third tip is you want to resist comparisons. So you don't want to compare your journey to other people. And this is something that I had to remind myself of often because in my, at my school at Walden, we were in cohorts for the dissertation phase. So as people finished, new students came in every quarter. And there were some students that started when I did and finished before me. And I had to remind myself, I can't compare where I am to where they are and what they've done to what I'm doing. I just got to stay focused on my journey. And you can't measure your success to other people because it's only going to lead to frustration and it's going to cause you to down yourself. So I would tell myself, you should be a lot farther along. Why why are you still just writing chapter two? But I cannot and you cannot compare yourself to other people. The fourth tip, you want to remember why you started. You want to keep that principle in mind as you navigate your way throughout your program. And my family was really good of, of reminding me of my why. So I specifically remember my dad telling me two things that I'll never forget. The first thing he told me was, if it were easy, everyone would do it when I would get discouraged. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is so hard. I'm so frustrated with all the revisions and all of the pushback. And you need to change that. And that really came into focus my very last residency. I was so excited because I had narrowed down my topic and I had started writing. I think I had written at that point the first Oh, chapter one and three, I think, or I may have written the entire proposal and I was so excited about it. And I shared it with a faculty member and she looked over what what I brought down to the session. And she told me, I believe you should take this and scrap the whole thing and start over. Mm. And I went to my hotel room and I am bawling. I'm just so disappointed. So I called my parents and I was like, she told me I need to start over. And I just, I worked so hard. And my dad was like, just calm down. Because the second thing he told me is that you will finish what you start. We always, we, as in the Currys, we always finish what we start. Okay, dad. Okay. And my fifth (laughs) tip is you want to cultivate your network. So you want to join groups on social media, if you can be responsible with that, that are solely about your doctoral journey. Then you want to locate a mentor or someone that has successfully completed a terminal degree that you can call on when you need advice. And I suggest that you get to know some peers in your program. And it really helped me to maintain my focus, to eliminate distractions and resist comparisons. And to remember why I started the first four by having peers that could relate to where I was because they were in the program, too. And we were able to have conference calls and bounce ideas off each other and talk through things instead of bothering my um, committee. And they also understood the discomfort because they were in the program as well. And then as we all finished, we celebrated each other. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing like to me having someone 
that can relate to where you are because your family, they're going to be like, oh, it's okay," but they don't understand. They don't know what it's like to get a document back and it's full of track changes and suggestions on, oh, change this, reword this, and this needs to be in black and white and you need to add a figure here. They don't understand. They can sympathize, but they don't understand. So those are my top five tips on navigating successfully through a doctoral program. Dr. Kerr, you need to write a book. (laughs) I have written a book, but it's not about that. (laughs) (laughs) You need to write another one. (laughs) Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Well, you you heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go... Um, before we wrap it up, um, let people know, uh, you know, how to reach you or if you want people to reach you. And um, especially with your, uh, you know, your dissertation assistance mm-hmm. that you provide students, um, you know, let them really, you know, let them know what they're kind of signed up for when <laughs> you and what your capacity is so that, you know, people know, you know, if they hear this, this show goes viral, um, they know how much capacity you have. <laughs> Well, as I tell prospective clients, I'm always taking new clients because each week varies. Like I've had back to back clients over the last several days. And so now I'm kind of at a low, but I'm okay with it because it gives me time to just decompress and do something else like read for leisure or watch Netflix or just take my mind off of the day to day. Um, But you can reach me via my website. That's probably the easiest way because I can respond to you in real time. And it's www.dracwrites, that's D-R-A-C-Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. And it lists everything about me. It gives you more information into the number of clients that I've assisted. So since August 2nd of 2019, I have completed 159 projects, Mm. which I'm very excited about. And there are 46 doctors who have gone through my editing consultancy that successfully finished their program. So I'm very excited about the work. But you can also find me um, everywhere on social media with the handle Dr. Andrea Curry. So that's Facebook, that's LinkedIn, that's Instagram and Twitter and YouTube also. But I haven't been consistent posting there. And then if you want to hear my podcast, it's available on, I think, nine different platforms right now. And it's called Mind to Heart, which is the title of my first published book. Dope, dope. So I'm going to make sure that um, I link all of those in the show notes here and I'll make sure to tag everything so that people can um, reach out to you uh, for listening to this. I just want to say again, thanks for coming and blessing um, whoever listens to this with the knowledge that you have. Um, And, you know, I just looked at your website and it's, you know, this is the kind of information that I think the culture needs one Mm -hmm. to cultivate and to share with one another Mm -hmm. that we can do exactly what I um, alluded to earlier uh, with Dr. Jenna Moses told us that, you know, whatever we need or whatever problem we have to get out of, it's, Mm -hmm. it's already in the community. We're already here. We have it. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for coming again. Thank you for having me.
Thank you for tuning in. Check back sometime soon for more PhD tips. Until next time, peace.